Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Hey there, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Red Light Report. Happy to be with you guys today. Appreciate everyone listening in as always. And today, Instead of going over research, there's a section of a book I want to go over with you guys and read, and it's a book that I read at least once a year, kind of similar to the book with all the research by Fritz Hallwich I went over last month. This book was published in the 90s, so my point being, the information in this isn't brand spanky new but it's as relevant now as ever. The chapter I want to go over with you guys has to do specifically with UV light. I'll tell you about the specifics of the book when we get there. But what I want to go over here initially is on Instagram, I've been posting quiz questions just to get people engaged and having fun and and more or less learning about red light therapy. So I started doing this a couple weeks ago at this point. I'll post a quiz question where you get to guess an answer, and then the the subsequent day, I'll reveal the results as far as how, how people answered, and I'll give an explanation to the answer, so you're not just seeing whether you're right or wrong, you know, once you answer the question, but the following day, you'll see the reason why the answer is what it is. I just want to go over the four questions I've posted to date, because <laughs> every single question I've asked has been answered poorly, I'll, I'll, I'll say, meaning the first question or two is a little tricky. So it's like, okay, I understand why the vast majority didn't get that right. But then my last two were pretty much softball questions. And even then, the vast majority, and by that, I mean like 50, 60, 70% of the people got them incorrect. So the thing is, that's not a bad thing. That means people are learning and clearly myself and BioLite, we need to step up our education game because even still with all the information that we provide, and yes, more and more people are figuring out learning about red light therapy every single day. But the point being, again, we need to step up our education game because clearly we could be doing a better job. And so again, I just want to go over these four quiz questions and answers. Maybe some of you who are listening answer these questions. Other of you, maybe not. If you guys are on Instagram, I highly recommend you, of course, follow BioLite, which is at BioLite.shop. But then tune in to the stories because, again, these quizzes will be coming out on a pretty regular basis with answers the subsequent day. So I highly recommend that every single one of you join the fray. And if anything else, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know quite a bit about red light therapy to this point. So maybe you can boost the percentage of correct answers. But I digress. Let's get on to the questions here. So the first one I asked was, true or false? So this was actually a 50-50 question. True or false? Red light therapy helps with vitamin D levels during darker months. It was like 70 or 80% thought that it was true, but it's false. Red light therapy doesn't help with vitamin D levels during the darker months because, of course, the sun's not out as much. You're not getting that sun exposure. But the kicker here is the red light therapy doesn't help synthesize vitamin D. You need specifically UVB light to synthesize vitamin D, which technically isn't a vitamin. It's, it's a hormone. 
Very, very important for immunity, bone building, calcium absorption, and all that good stuff. So vitamin D is very important. The point being, red light therapy doesn't help with that directly. And I say directly because perhaps there is a way that red light therapy, by the way that it helps, of course, improve energy levels at the cellular level, that it could help with some of that. But again, there hasn't been any research to prove that. So to our knowledge, Red light therapy does not help with vitamin D levels. Again, you need UVB light. And that can come from from a UVB lamp or a UV lamp. But again, you need to be careful with UV lamps because you can get burned just like the sun. So those are considered more dangerous than red light therapy because, of course, you can get overexposed, get sunburns, even cause skin cancer if you overexpose yourself to UV lamps on a consistent basis. So anyway... You need UV light, not red light therapy for vitamin D levels. Okay, the next question was, which organ below is the most mitochondrial dense? Is it the spleen, the pancreas, the eyes, or the thyroid? Spleen, pancreas, eyes, or thyroid? The majority of people answered thyroid. That is incorrect. It's the eyes. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you likely got that question right because I've said over and over again, the most mitochondrial dense tissues are the ones that require the most energy. So that's going to be the brain, the heart, skeletal muscle, liver, the eyes. The thyroid isn't too far down, but the eyes by far require more energy and are thus more mitochondrial dense. So for that list... The eyes were top dog. Going on to the next one. So when I posted those first two questions and the vast majority of people got it wrong, I figured I would do some softball questions to kind of boost um, the accuracy and kind of get the people knocking some out of the park here. And so my next question I posted was, can red and near-infrared light penetrate clothing? Yes or no? And again, 60 to 70% people said yes. It can, but again, if you're familiar with this podcast and or if you're familiar with red light therapy treatments, you know that your skin must be exposed if you want to see benefits. So if you want to do a full body treatment, you got to be naked to be receiving those systemic benefits. So again, the answer to this question was no, red and near infrared light cannot penetrate clothing. Technically, does some light get through? I mean, technically, probably yes, But is there enough getting through the clothing to cause a therapeutic response or a therapeutic dosage? Absolutely not. So you cannot have clothes on where you want to see results with red light therapy. And then the last question I posted a couple days ago at the time of this recording was, for best results, do you need to do red light therapy every day? Again, for best results, do you need to do red light therapy every day? And again... By far, I forget what the percentage was on this. It might have been close to 80%. People said, yes, you do, but you don't. That's absolutely incorrect. And again, if you've been tuning into this podcast, if you've read through the ebook I've developed on red light therapy, you know that there's what's called a biphasic dose response, just like a bell curve, where on the far left side of the curve is a dosage that's too low. And if the dosage is too low, you're not going to get benefits. But then if you go to the far, far right side of the bell curve, that's where the dosage is too high. 
And just like if the dosage is too low, if the dosage is too high, again, you're not going to get the results you're looking for. So more is not better. You don't need to do red light therapy every single day to get results. In fact, you're probably doing yourself a disservice if you're trying to specifically treat something. For the most part, if you do it every other day, that's going to be much more beneficial than doing it every single day. And again, that's for a specific treatment. If you're trying to treat, let's say, a skin irritation up on your face, and then you're trying to treat some pain down in your ankle, yes, then you can do red light therapy every day because then you could treat your face one day, treat your ankle the next, treat your face the subsequent day, treat the ankle the day after that. So you can go back and forth, back and forth. So technically, you can do red light therapy every day if you're doing it in isolation. But I guess the way I phrase this question is for best results, do you need to do it every single day? No, because if you're doing full body treatments, again, doing it every other day is actually going to be much more beneficial than doing it every single day, by and large. The caveat to that is, the study that BioLite did with BioStrap this past summer in, in 2021, where they did do full body red light therapy sessions every single day. And they did it 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening, where they did five minutes in the front, five minutes in the back of the body, full body treatment, red and near infrared light. So they weren't necessarily trying to treat pain or reduce inflammation. We were trying to figure out, did the sleep improve? And as a byproduct of that study, we actually found out that every single time that someone did a 10-minute treatment with red and near infrared light full body, they actually increased their parasympathetic nervous system by about 120%. So that's not to say that you shouldn't do red light therapy every day. Of course, it depends on what you're going for. I should clarify by increasing your parasympathetic drive you're actually decreasing your stress because you're tapping into that rest and digest part of your nervous system versus the sympathetic part of the nervous system, which is fight or flight, meaning you're on the go, go, go. Cortisol levels are high and that's associated with stress. So being able to tap into your parasympathetic nervous system, whether it's deep breathing, meditation, red light therapy now we know can help you tap into your parasympathetic nervous system. And of course, you can do those in combination with each other. But my point being, and this has turned into quite the rabbit hole <laughs> on this quiz question, the point being, you can do red light therapy every day if your intention is to reduce your stress. Just like that, you know, BioLite study showed, 10 minutes full body, increase your parasympathetic drive by 120%. So that's amazing. But if you're looking for the proposed benefits of red light therapy, which is reducing inflammation, improving circulation, optimizing mitochondrial health, then you shouldn't be doing it every single day. Because just like exercise, while you know exercise is, is good overall, if you do it every single day, you're not allowing your body to recover and to adapt to the stresses you put upon it with your exercise. And so light, believe it or not, is a stress. It causes a hormetic response where it has to adapt to the stresses of the of the light, red and near infrared light, and then build up the cells stronger, make them able to produce more energy. So again, if you're doing it every single day, just like if you exercise hard every single day, you're not allowing your body to adapt and utilize that hormetic response for its benefit. So just keep that in mind. That was the point of that question. But just like that caveat, if you're doing it for stress, by all means, do your 10 minutes a day 
help, you know, reduce your stress and drive up your parasympathetic tone. And now for the book portion of this episode. This is a book I'll read once a year at least because the information is so impactful and there's just so much of it that's a good reminder of how powerful light, full spectrum sunlight, getting light into your eyes is. And so the book is called Light, Medicine of the Future by Jacob Lieberman, who is a doctor of optometry and a PhD. And again, as a reminder, this book was published in 91, and he has another book uh, that's more recent that uh, I'll probably dig into in future episodes. But for the purpose of this solo episode, I just want to go over a quick excerpt from the foreword by a particularly special person, and then I want to go over a chapter that talks about UV light. So here we are, it's in February, and depending on where you are in the world, latitude-wise, you're probably not getting a lot of UV light exposure. And or, as we turn into spring here, and especially summer, we will be getting much more UV light exposure. And so I kind of want to debunk some of these myths that we have surrounding sunlight, and how we have to protect our eyes, and how we have to protect our skin. And while that is surely the case for some people, and I'm not saying to never protect your eyes or never protect your skin, I think we've been swinging the pendulum too far away from nature and have become, quote-unquote, overprotective of our body as it relates to sun exposure. And so again, I think this chapter today will help hopefully make you think twice or at least have you kind of question the status quo in today's modern world of always, you know, putting on polarized sunglasses and lathering up with who knows what type of toxic, you know, suntan lotion or sunscreen, what have you. And so again, I think Dr. Lieberman will be able to portray that very succinctly. But in the foreword here, I do want to start with that because it's a foreword by Dr. John Ott. And Dr. John Ott wrote books on light in the 70s and 80s, and I think even 60s. He's one of the true pioneers of light and how it affects health. I believe he was a cinematographer or a videographer for Disney. And so he would be taking a, a videos of plants. And, and during this time, he noticed how depending on the light that the plant was getting, it would change its health or the way it grew or the way it was even facing. Then he went really deep into different type of light exposures, whether it was dark or blue or red or more UV, different types of greenhouses and whatnot. And so Dr. John Ott got really deep into light in, in the mid-1900s and the latter part. So this forward by him is pretty powerful. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's relatively lengthy, but I, I will read this one part, which will be a pretty good segue into the chapter about UV light. So again, this is from Dr. John Ott. And again, he's considered a pioneer in the field of photobiology. So he goes on to say, life on earth evolved under natural sunlight and has existed for quite some time under the full spectrum of light that it contains. Many prehistoric tribes and even entire civilizations worshipped the sun for its healing powers, using its full spectrum of light to treat physical and mental problems, a practice known as heliotherapy. 
Yet, modern scientific medical research now claims that sunlight is hazardous to people's health, and all sorts of special eyeglasses and sunscreen lotions are marketed to give complete protection. Major financial interests have come into play, sometimes making the truth even more obscure. Unfortunately, the natural heliotherapy of the past has been replaced by many artificial approaches such as chemotherapy. It seems as though many of today's therapies are in some ways like taking a magic pill. They will either eliminate the symptoms or numb the senses sufficiently so that the problem won't be noticed anymore. As discussed in chapter 12 of the book, a car's engine requires fuel, oxygen, and a spark to create internal combustion, which makes the car run. The human body also requires fuel in the form of food, oxygen, and a spark in the form of light to ignite the process of metabolism. If the ignition system of the car is not functioning properly, fuel additives will not solve the problem. The same is true in the human body. Vitamins will not solve the problems caused by a lack of appropriate wavelengths of light necessary to complete metabolism. There is no question in my mind that the visible portion of the spectrum, as well as certain portions beyond, which would be UV and near-infrared, especially the ultraviolet, act as the ignition system for all human biological functions. And so I'll stop there with this foreword. But it's interesting to note, even when this was published, and this was actually written in 1990, Dr. John Ott could clearly see that this marketing ploy for protecting your eyes and lathering up with sunscreen, there was a vested interest. I mean, just follow the paper trail, essentially, is what he's saying. And again, that's more relevant today than it probably was even back in 1990. And then again, of course, someone who's so um, engaged with, with photobiology is speaking the virtues of the human body needing its exposure to full-spectrum sunlight. You can't replace full-spectrum sunlight. You can't replace light wavelengths with vitamins. You need the fuel, not the additives. You need the foundation, not the supplement. And light is a foundation. But moving on to the chapter. So this chapter is chapter 11, not chapter 12 like uh, Dr. John Ott mentioned, but chapter 11, which is called UV or not UV. That is the question. And so let's begin. For millions of years, life on Earth evolved under the constant influence of natural sunlight. People have always felt and recognized their connection with light. Its effects were so profoundly obvious to ancient cultures that they revered the sun as a god, blessing it daily for its gifts. Unfortunately, times have changed. As we discovered how to produce artificial light, we gradually lost our intuitive connection with natural sunlight. The sun, once considered a god, has recently been found guilty of numerous crimes and is now thought to be armed and dangerous. The public is warned, be cautious, keep the sun out of your eyes, and protect yourself at all times. What are the real facts about sunlight? Why does the term ultraviolet, or UV, immediately cause people to think of cancer, cataracts, aging, and wrinkles? More than 50% of the U.S. population wears prescription or sun-protective glasses made with lenses that block out most UV light. The newest plastic lenses, called UV-400, and again, keep in mind this is 1991, UV-400 block out all UV light. There are now even eye drops 
uh, being clinically evaluated that block out 98% of the UV light. In suntan lotions, sun protection factors SPF 6, 8, and even 15 are no longer considered adequate protection against UV rays. SPF 25 and 30 are now recommended for complete protection. This blocking of ultraviolet rays may severely weaken the body's defenses. And he writes that with an exclamation point. I'll, I'll read it again. This blocking of ultraviolet rays may severely weaken the body's defenses. According to photobiologist Dr. John Ott, there are strong indications that UV light through the eyes stimulate the immune system. There is no question that UV light in large amounts is harmful. However, in trace amounts, as in natural sunlight, it acts according to Ott as a life-supporting nutrient that is highly beneficial. Is it possible that science has gone off too far? This may be one of the biggest blunders science has made in the last 50 years. And then going into the different kinds of ultraviolet radiation. So sunlight contains large amounts of ultraviolet or UV radiation. UV light is classified as either near UV, which is UVA, mid UV, which is UVB, or far UV, which is UVC, depending on its wavelength. Near UV directly adjoining to the violet end of the spectrum, a visible light spectrum, is responsible for the tanning response in humans, which would be UVA. Mid-UV, which is UVB, seems to activate the synthesis of vitamin D and the absorption of calcium and other minerals. Far-UV, which is UVC, which is mostly filtered out by the Earth's ozone layer, is germicidal, killing bacteria, viruses, and other infectious agents. Today, virtually all sources of ultraviolet exposure are seen as detrimental to humans. For example, all the fluorescent lights in the research laboratories of the radiological branch of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration are covered with special plastic sleeves that absorb UV light. The agency does not want its employees to get a trace of that quote-unquote deadly ray. And then moving on to a section called Sun and Ultraviolet Therapy. How is it possible that sunlight, the most powerful nutrient in our solar system, can be so dangerous? Sun therapy was very popular in Europe from the turn of the century until the late 1930s. It was called heliotherapy after Helios, the Greek god of the sun. One of the famous practitioners of sun therapy was a medical doctor named August Rollier, who was the director of a sun therapy clinic in Lysen, a town high in the Swiss Alps. He attributed the therapeutic action of the sun to its invisible ultraviolet rays. Dr. Rollier, whose clinic was 5,000 feet above sea level, favored the highest mountains because the air is transparent and easily traversed by the sun's rays, which pass through without absorption. Dr. Rollier knew that his patients would get the best results if they received the highest amount of ultraviolet light. He got such incredible results at his clinic that he published a book on his method. In English, it's called Curing with the Sun. Tuberculosis was one of the main diseases treated by sunshine, and many of its victims were completely cured. However, one doctor found that the sun did not help when the patients wore sunglasses, which blocked the healing ultraviolet light. Other conditions helped by sun therapy include colitis, anemia, gout, cystitis, atherosclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, eczema, 
acne, herpes, lupus, sciatica, asthma, kidney problems, and even burns. During that same period of time, Professor George Sperti of the University of Cincinnati was performing wonders with a quote-unquote tuned ultraviolet rays. Considered one of the world's authorities on UV at that time, Sperti developed technology that could variably adjust UV rays in order to put vitamin D in milk, tan skin, kill germs, and perform any number of other applications. By the mid-1930s, sunbathing and ultraviolet therapy had become known as the most effective treatments for many infectious diseases. In 1938, however, Penicillin was discovered, and science rushed into the new world of pharmaceuticals. Drugs became big business. Sun therapy became as poorly thought of as snake oil and was generally forgotten except by a handful of individuals. And so that last paragraph is extremely important because that was kind of the dawn of technology and all these wonder pills, if you will, and brush aside these holistic, quote-unquote, alternative, natural healing remedies. While these healing remedies of the natural sort may have taken longer, yet led to effective and efficacious results, they weren't as quick as some of these vaccines or antibiotics or pills. People want the quick result, which is not always the best or safest in the long run. And so again, 1938, penicillin comes onto the scene, and then things like sunbathing get thrown to the back and eventually is cast down upon. And here we are today in, in 2022. And for the most of us, we think of, you know, a moderate amount of sun exposure as potentially a bad thing or we should fear it. So just keep that in mind. Look back at history to see why we believe what we do today because you'd be surprised what history teaches us. And when I specifically get into these books by Dr. John Ott, you'll see that I think it was one or two specific scientific pieces of research that were poorly done, and they weren't even done on humans, demonstrated that UV light is toxic and bad for us. And I believe it was done on pigs. And it was done with one spectra of UV light. I won't go down that rabbit hole today, but just keep in mind that it's healthy to question the status quo. It's healthy to have some critical thinking and wonder why certain aspects, especially when it comes to health and wellness, just like Dr. Ott was alluding to in the foreword, follow the paper trail. There's, there's ulterior motives typically at hand when certain things are being marketed heavily. And, you know, today we're talking about light, but then golly, we can get into Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and now 5G. And again, just follow the paper trail. Do we really need to be able to download a Netflix movie in 15 seconds on our phone? Like, do we really need that? What What's really going on behind the scenes? So again, the point being here, the script was really flipped in 1938 as it relates to the sun being worshipped or the sun being seen as a healthy modality for so many different uh, health conditions. But then when penicillin came out and other things subsequent to that, being exposed to sunlight for health was no longer held up on a pedestal like it was. But now let's get into the benefits of UV light. Going on here with uh, Dr. Jacob Lieberman, there is, however, another side to the story of healing with light, and it has never been told fully. Most people don't know that there are tremendous health benefits from ultraviolet light. 
consider the following. UV light activates the synthesis of vitamin D, which is a prerequisite for the absorption of calcium and other minerals from the diet. Robert Neer and associates conducted a study of a group of elderly veterans to determine if extra sunlight would increase their ability to absorb calcium from their diets. All of the men received approximately 200 IU per day of vitamin D in their diets. One group of these men lived in an environment with full-spectrum lighting, which contains UV, while the other group's living quarters had ordinary indoor lighting, which contains no UV. The group that received no UV had a 25% decrease in calcium absorption, while the group receiving UV had a 15% increase. In other words, the group receiving UV absorbed 40% more calcium from their diet than their counterparts who received no ultraviolet exposure. Number two, UV light lowers blood pressure. It was first noticed in the early 1900s that UV radiation from the sun lowers blood pressure in both normal individuals and those with elevated blood pressure. In fact, in one study, people exposed to just one treatment of ultraviolet light noticed a dramatic lowering of their elevated blood pressure. They found that the effect lasted from five to six days. Number three, UV light increases the efficiency of the heart. At the Tulane School of Medicine, Dr. Raymond Johnson exposed 20 people to ultraviolet light. In 18 of the 20 people tested, their cardiac output increased an average of 39%. In other words, their heart became stronger and pumped more blood. Number four, UV light improves electrocardiogram or EKG readings and blood profiles of individuals with atherosclerosis, which is a hardening of the arteries. In one study, 169 Russian patients with cerebral atherosclerosis received treatments with UV light. A one-year follow-up indicated that all patients had an improvement in cerebral circulation, were back at work, and reported feeling better. Other studies have shown similar results. Number five, UV light reduces cholesterol. And we can go back and forth about cholesterol, but for the sake of this, let's just keep on moving. In one experiment, patients with hypertension and related circulatory problems were exposed to UV light. Two hours after the first exposure, 97% of the patients had almost a 13% decrease in serum cholesterol levels. Within this group, 86% maintained that level 24 hours later. It should also be noted that the other types of fats implicated in heart disease, such as fatty acids, mono, dye, and triglycerides, are also reduced by exposure to UV radiation. This probably occurs because the body requires UV light to help break down cholesterol. Number six, UV light assists in weight loss. Farm animals living outdoors don't fatten as easily as those living indoors. This has also been confirmed in studies in which animals exposed to UV light lose weight. This effect is thought to be caused by the fact that UV stimulates the thyroid gland, which increases metabolism and thus burns calories. In the 1930s, Swiss sun therapists found that their clients had well-developed muscles and very little fat, even though they had not exercised for months. Similar conclusions are mentioned by Dr. Zane Keim in his book, Sunlight. Number seven, UV light is an effective treatment for psoriasis. 
Reports from the National Psoriasis Foundation indicate that 80% of those suffering from this skin disease improve when they are exposed to UV light. Number 8. UV light is an effective treatment for many other diseases. UV light has been found to be very effective in killing infectious bacteria, including several forms of tuberculosis bacteria. In 1993, F. H. Crutzen, in his book Light Therapy, lists approximately 165 different diseases that have been treated with UV light. The Russians and Germans routinely use UV light to combat black lung disease in minors. Russian doctors believe that the UV light helps the bloodstream to remove the dust from the workers' lungs, as well as general infectious diseases in schools and workplaces. In other studies, patients with severe asthma have been able to breathe freely after treatment with UV light. Number 9. UV light increases the level of sex hormones. In a study at Boston State Hospital, Dr. Abraham Meyerson found that ultraviolet light increased male hormone levels by 120%. Ultraviolet light also increases the level of female hormones. Another medical laboratory found that estrogen has a sharp peak of absorption in a portion of the UV range at 290 nanometers that many people claim is dangerous and not needed. However, this finding indicates that estrogen is most efficient when a woman is exposed to UV wavelengths. Number 10, the last one here, number 10. UV light activates an important skin hormone. Researchers from the University of North Carolina have shown that solitrol, a hormone in the skin, works in conjunction with the pineal hormone melatonin to control the body's responses to sunlight and darkness. Solitrol, believed to be a form of vitamin D3, works with melatonin antagonistically to generate changes in mood, circadian rhythms, and seasonal reproduction. Produced by the action of UV light, solitrol influences many of the body's regulatory centers as well as the immune system. The findings of these researchers might help to explain the connection between sunlight and human health. So there you have it, 10 benefits of UV light. We're not even talking about red light therapy anymore. UV light, the demonized wavelength. So it's much more than just tanning your skin or even just vitamin D synthesis. Again, I'll run down the list one more time, just the benefits. So it activates synthesis of vitamin D, lowers blood pressure, increases the efficiency of the heart, improves ECG or EKG readings for blood profiles for individuals with atherosclerosis, UV light reduces cholesterol, assists with weight loss, UV light can be effective for the treatment of psoriasis, this one is, is very general but is effective for treatment of many other diseases, and in that book, F.H. Critson lists approximately 165 diseases that UV light can help treat. UV light increases the level of sex hormones, and UV light activates an important skin hormone, solitrol. So pretty wild to think all of those benefits we're all missing out on when we cover up in clothing, hats, sunglasses, sunscreen, and so on and so forth. So many health benefits. So many, and what are the downstream effects of not realizing those benefits? I mean, uh, that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. So again, I hope this is more food for thought that there is benefits. There's many benefits to getting UV exposure that you don't need to be slathering on 
suntan lotion right away. I'm not promoting sunburns by any means, but you should be able to expose your skin, expose your eyes to UV light long enough to get just that kiss of redness. You don't want to go into that sunburn, but just where you start to get that little blush and then start covering up or then start protecting. And from what I've read and learned, the more consistently you do that, and this is what Dr. Jack Cruz calls building up your solar callus, the more you consistently expose your body, expose your skin to UV light, the longer you will be able to go eventually, weeks and weeks down the road, months and months down the road of consistent UV exposure, the longer you'll be able to go before you start getting that redness in your skin, which is you know indicative of sunburn if you stay out much longer. Whereas you may only be able to do it for a couple of minutes initially, you'll eventually be able to do it for hours without getting a sunburn. We all have that potential. Even those with with the whitest of white skins, you know, red hair, Irish, Scottish heritage, where you get sunburned just, just thinking about the sun. Even those types of people can build up their solar callus in a way to where you can get large amounts of UV exposure without having the negative side effects of quote-unquote excessive UV light exposure. This podcast was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horanek, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions, and not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full-spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids. And most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop, that's biolite.shop. And you got to think that a lot of our modern day lifestyle habits have accentuated these sunburns and the negative side effects of UV exposure, by and large, because we're rarely outside. I think I talked about this one of one of my previous podcast guests, but we've basically become weekend warriors when it comes to sun exposure. Because if we're working that Monday through Friday job, let's just say it's that nine to five, you wake up in the morning, you eat your breakfast, you drive to work, you work, you drive home, and when you get home, it's it's dark. And rarely, if ever, do you get any full spectrum light exposure, except when you're walking from your house to your car, from your car to work. But that's not going to build up your solar callus. That's not going to lead to the the 10 benefits I just listed off with UV exposure. So back to my point here, if you're working Monday through Friday, and then you're going outside for your hikes uh, Saturday, Sunday, or you're out playing your sports and playing softball and whatnot, getting sun exposure one day of the week or two days of the week out of seven is not going to build up your solar callus. It needs to be something where you're getting it on a daily basis. 
or darn near every day. Because again, just like red light therapy, you do need to allow your body to recover. But my point here is we all have the innate ability to build up our solar callus and thus receive the many, many benefits of UV light without sacrificing or becoming, you know, prey to excessive UV radiation. But moving on here, the next section is called, Still, is UV beneficial or harmful? And it goes on to say, Dr. Ott is the first to agree that too much UV light is bad, but he says, we quote, we need a basic amount to support life and maintain a healthy immune system. He adds, all wavelengths of sunlight are beneficial. His analogy is that giving too much oxygen at birth can blind a baby. However, he says, it would be foolish to jump to the conclusion that oxygen is hazardous to your health and that you would live without oxygen. Yet this is exactly the conclusion that is drawn with ultraviolet light. If you put your hand in the furnace, it is going to get burned. But this doesn't mean you avoid the heat completely and keep your house at absolute zero. The public has to understand that light is a nutrient, just like a vitamin or a mineral. Trace amounts of ultraviolet radiation are as important to people as trace amounts of vital nutrients. People used to laugh at the concept that one part per million of a chemical or nutrient could have an effect on health. They thought that any amount that small was virtually insignificant. Now, they realize that parts per billion and even parts per trillion affect us. The same philosophy applies to light. When trace amounts of certain wavelengths of light are missing from your light diet, this can have a staggering effect on your health. And then the next section here is called UV Studies That Created a Climate of Fear. In 1981, a study was conducted at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, the conclusions of which have always seemed questionable to me, the author Dr. Lieberman. Monkeys were tranquilized, then their eyelids were pried open with lid clamps. With the monkeys' pupils fully dilated, Researchers beamed light into their eyes from a 2,500-watt xenon lamp for 16 minutes. This intense light contained high levels of UV radiation. Isn't this abusive? Although the results of the study showed that there are some retinal damage, it is hard for me to imagine that the researchers could have concluded anything else. They gave these monkeys a highly abnormal exposure to UV light that would never happen in real life. In real life, monkeys pupils and eyelids would naturally adjust to protect their eyes, just like the pupils and eyelids of humans do. Another argument science makes against ultraviolet light is that it causes cataracts. The same kinds of studies on laboratory animals concluding that UV light causes retinal damage are frequently used to conclude that UV light also causes cataracts. Of course, the eyes in these studies were damaged. Did they expect vision to improve? Similar studies in which the skin of animals is repeatedly burned with high levels of UV light also have been done to quote-unquote prove that the ultraviolet light causes skin cancer. And I believe this is the one where they used pigs. Why are these scientists suggesting that ultraviolet radiation causes cancer in cataracts? Their research, which is frequently inhumane, leads to but one conclusion. The abuse of animals in their studies causes cancer, blindness, and death. There are several inherent problems with this research, and in fact, with most of the animal research being performed in this country. First, 
The sentient creatures used in these experiments are labeled quote-unquote laboratory animals in order to depersonalize them as if their only reason for existence is the purpose of being inhumanely experimented with and eventually slaughtered. People do terrible experiments on these animals which are not much different from those that have been done to humans in concentration camps. Furthermore, it is impossible to come to valid scientific conclusions based on these experiments because they are performed under extremely unnatural conditions that do not and never will exist in reality and would be considered highly abusive if they were attempted on humans. Also, when the results of these experiments are published, the researchers say, Our research indicates that in laboratory animals... How does this relate to humans? Is our understanding really any farther along than it was before the experiments began? Was there any time or place in history when a law was written or a supreme being told humans that it was okay for them to treat other living creatures this way? The real question is, do we need to experiment on and harm other creatures in order to learn what is and isn't good for us? As supposedly one of the most intelligent species on earth, shouldn't we already know these things? And then moving on to another section here called, Are We Creating Our Own Blindness? With all of the current propaganda on the wearing of sunglasses with UV400, uh, ultraviolet blocking lenses, is it possible that we are unknowingly contributing to the increased incidence of blindness and eye disease in this country? Material has come to light, pun intended I'm sure, indicating that certain studies that have been done on the negative effects of UV light may have been based on erroneous premise. In a recent article entitled Light and the Aging Eye, Professor John Marshall of the University of London states that the body is made up of two distinct cell systems. One system consists of cells that constantly renew themselves by undergoing cell division, for example the cornea, skin, and otherwise, while the other system consists of non-dividing cells, such as the brain, retina, and so on. Organs made up of dividing cells are, we might say, constantly reborn, while organs formed from non-dividing cells maintain the same cells throughout the entire lifetime of the individual. As an example of a non-dividing cell system, Dr. Marshall refers specifically to the photoreceptors, which are the rods and cones, and pigment epithelium cells of the retina. He suggests that certain degenerative eye diseases are probably the direct result of what he considers to be these non-replenishable cells absorbing an excess amount of radiation, specifically UV, over the lifetime of the individual. However, since light has such a profound effect on the biological functioning of the body, it must therefore also have a profound effect on the functioning of each individual cell within the body. The eye is not only a window for light energy to traverse on its way to the brain, but the components of the eye, for example the cornea and retina, must also be using the direct energy of light to stimulate and regulate the functioning of their cells. In fact, 25 years ago, Dr. John Ott, working in conjunction with the research department of the Wills Eye Hospital in Philadelphia, made a sequence of time-lapse microphotographs that highlighted a previously undiscovered phenomenon. While studying the pigment epithelium cells of rabbit's eye through different colored filters customarily used in the phase contrast microscope, Ott noticed that the color of the filters used to view the cells significantly affected the biological responses within the cells themselves. Further, 
Ott noticed that these cells would divide only if low levels of ultraviolet radiation were projected onto them. It thus appears clear that pigment epithelium cells do divide under the right conditions, which require the presence of ultraviolet radiation, and that Marshall's statements are based on an inaccurate premise. This may be due to the fact that most microscopes typically do not contain ultraviolet radiation in their light sources, nor do most laboratories have ultraviolet in their general lighting. It further appears that the typical American indoor lifestyle, coupled with our excessive use of sunglasses, might be blocking out the UV radiation necessary for normal cell division, thus resulting in certain degenerative eye diseases such as macular degeneration. So rather than ultraviolet radiation contributing to such diseases, they may instead be the result of the lack of it. And I have that underlined in the book, so I'm going to read it again. So rather than ultraviolet radiation contributing to such diseases of the eye, they may be instead the result of the lack of it. So when I've said multiple times on podcasts, consider discarding or significantly decreasing the use of your polarized sunglasses, this is why. Moving on to another section called Current Beliefs About Skin Cancer. Today, most people equate skin cancer with ultraviolet light. The two are virtually synonymous. There are certain published facts regarding the UV radiation in cancer, such as skin cancer occurs most often on the parts of the body most commonly exposed to the sun, which are the head, neck, arms, and hands. There is a higher incidence of skin cancer in lighter-skinned people, especially those working outdoors. Animal experiments have shown that larger-than-normal doses of UV over short periods of time are a factor in the development of skin cancer. It is believed that chronic overexposure to UV light with the subsequent sunburning is a contributing factor to the development of skin cancer in 90% of the cases, as the skin is burned, free radicals are formed that are responsible not only for much of the damage involved in burning, but also for the actual aging of the skin. If uncontrolled, these free radicals can cause DNA damage, which may contribute to the development of skin cancer. It should be noted that free radicals are normally kept in check by enzymes, some vitamins, and minerals. Skin malignancies are more prevalent in tropical and subtropical latitudes. And then moving on to a section right after it called Changing Beliefs About Skin Cancer. It goes on to say, On August 7th, 1982, the British medical journal Lancet published an article that went completely against the prevailing scientific position on the relationship between skin cancer and the sun. In a study conducted at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in England and the University of Sydney's Melanoma Clinic in Sydney, Australia, Researchers found that the incidence of malignant melanomas was considered higher in office workers than in individuals who are regularly exposed to sunlight due to lifestyle or occupation. One of the major researchers, Dr. Helen Shaw, found that the people who had the lowest risk of developing skin cancer were those whose main outdoor activity was sunbathing. I'll say that again. Dr. Shaw found that the people who had the lowest risk of developing skin cancer were those whose main outdoor activity was sunbathing. Twice the risk of developing melanomas was found in office workers who had to work indoors all day under fluorescent lights. 
Additional research by Dr. Shaw has shown that fluorescent office lights can cause mutations in cultures of animal cells. Dr. Shaw concludes that, in both Australia and Great Britain, melanoma rates were high among professional and office workers and lower in people working outdoors. Further, the results of two carefully controlled trials conducted at the New York University of School of Medicine confirmed reports published by the London School and University of Sydney. Dr. F. Allen Anderson, a biophysicist with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, believes that unshielded fluorescent lights may be responsible for approximately 5% of the total weekly dose of radiation that each person receives. In susceptible individuals, this dose may be high enough to cause skin cancer. From the above, it is apparent that the only real clear thing is that overexposure to the sun in conjunction with certain skin types is a major factor in the development of skin cancer. The solution then seems quite simple. Moderation is the key. Mild, sensible exposure to sunlight is not only safe, it is desirable. There are people all over the world who live at high altitudes or at the equator where levels of ultraviolet light are high yet they are virtually free of all types of cancer. It seems obvious that many other factors, such as nutrition, lifestyle, and so on, need to be evaluated. The ultraviolet issue has been exaggerated beyond belief by people who don't wish to take responsibility for their health and well-being. Old beliefs, such as boring holes in people's heads, bleeding them in time of illness, and removing their appendices and tonsils, have now shifted into a present-day wartime mentality. We have quote-unquote wars against cancer, diabetes, heart disease, AIDS, and drugs, just to name a few. People also seem to believe that these conditions are secretly planted here by outside malicious forces, such as spies from another country or some newly discovered virus from outer space. We are being invaded by German measles, Hong Kong flu, South American drugs, African monkeys with AIDS, and cataracts and skin cancer caused by the sun. Do these disorders originate in our external environment or within us? Has anyone ever heard of the New York City disease, dirty air-itis, or nationwide epidemic, junk food cancer? So, of course, Dr. Lieberman is tongue-in-cheek here. Dirty air-itis, junk food cancer. How about the childhood disease called good grades anxiety? We've now discovered that this and other childhood disorders lead to an adult version called getting ahead syndrome. Both, unfortunately, lead to heart attacks, clogged emotions, and frequently experienced heartache. We are living in a society populated by victims who are constantly at war with innocent outside sources that are only accomplices to their own self-inflicted crimes. When will we take responsibility for the conditions of our lives and recognize that there is a consequence for every action? Isn't it our chronic impatience that creates many of our problems today? We have to eat fast food, fast cars, fast suntans, and fast-proof our scientific theories. Once again, we need to look inside ourselves for the answers, rather than constantly pointing a finger at something out there that is out to get us. This last section here of the chapter are uh, some recommendations. So, the first one is sunlight. Spend a portion of each day, at least one hour, outside regardless of the weather, Even being in the shade or on a screened porch is fine. Anything that can be accomplished outdoors should not be indoors. Taking a walk is a nice way of spending time outdoors, while also taking time to breathe in nature and its beauty. 
Unless it is an extremely sunny day that feels too bright, don't wear sunglasses, prescription glasses, contacts, or suntan lotion. Removing your glasses and contact lenses will not only allow you to receive the benefits of natural light, it may also improve your natural eyesight as long as you don't strain to see while your glasses are off. You can stay in the sun longer than an hour, but you should work up to it gradually. Don't overdo it. Avoid exposure between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Also, never look directly into the sun. This can damage your eyes. If you are taking a drug that reacts to light, check with your doctor before going outdoors. While indoors, sit by an open window, if possible, or at least by an unshielded closed window. This will provide you with full visible spectrum of light, including the UV if the window is open, as well as its natural intensity while providing a view of the outdoors, which is relaxing to both the eyes and the mind. Recommendation 2. Sunglasses. If you must wear sunglasses, consider wearing neutral gray ones. The neutral gray will reduce sunlight intensity in a balanced manner better than other available tints. Trendy colors such as pink, blue, and red are not recommended. Number three, glasses. If you must wear prescription glasses, ask your eye care specialist about UV transmitting lenses. They have to be specially ordered. These are not recommended after cataract removal. If other eye diseases exist, consult your doctor. Number four, contact lenses. Tinted contacts can cause just as many problems as sunglasses, especially the new cosmetic contact lenses that come in assorted colors. They may look good, but your eyes receive highly unbalanced light. Brown and pink are the worst colors. Although the eyeglass and contact lens industries means well, their knowledge of the light's relationship to health is minimal. Most contacts totally block the ultraviolet B part of the spectrum. Some colored contacts have a clear area in the center, but this still blocks UV light. Many contact lens, eyeglass, and sunglass wearers become light-sensitive because their lenses block near UV as well as other portions of the spectrum. And keep in mind, again, that uh, Dr. Jacob Lieberman is a doctor of optometry, so when he's suggesting these things with sunglasses, glasses, and contact lenses, he's definitely a source to trust. Recommendation number five, UV transmitting plastic windows. Consider installing this type of window in your home instead of regular glass. It is made of either plexiglass or acrylite. Both of these plastics come in UVA and UVT versions. I recommend the UVT, which is ultraviolet transmitting. Plexiglass is made by Roman Haas Plastic Company. Acrylite is made by American Cinemide or Cinemid. Uh, The last recommendation, number six, suntan lotions. Warning. A recent report from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration concluded that 14 out of 17 suntan lotions containing PABA can be carcinogenic when used in the sun. PABA is used in many suntan lotions to block UV radiation. Additional research indicates that PABA can cause genetic damage to the DNA in the skin. Dr. Zane Keim, author of the book Sunlight, firmly believes that most suntan lotions, when used in the sun, can stimulate the formation of cancer cells. He says that it is the fat in the lotions that causes the problem. My first recommendation for sunbathing is to gradually build up your time in the sun and to use no sunscreens if you have moderate to dark skin. If you must be out in the bright midday sun for more than 30 minutes, or if you have fair skin, then consider using a sunscreen that does not contain 
P-A-B-A. And the closing section of this chapter is, has science made a mistake? He goes on to say, what does nature say about all this? The research papers don't seem to address the fact that humans evolved under natural sunlight. Are we supposed to dismiss 5 million years of evolution because science doesn't understand the supreme wisdom of nature? In modern times, all of a sudden, ultraviolet light is quote-unquote dangerous and should be avoided at all costs. We live in houses with no ultraviolet light. When we leave our houses, we put on our glasses, contacts, or sunglasses, which block out most of the UV light. We drive in cars that also block UV light. We work all day in offices and receive no UV there either. Then, at night, we turn on our grossly distorted man-made lights. Still, no UV light. When we finally take a break and get out in the sun, what do we do? We put on our sunglasses and cover our skin with sunscreens, just to make sure we don't get exposed to these hazardous rays. A lot of people are now petrified to go out in the natural sunshine without some form of protection. Is there a possibility that maybe, just maybe, we have gone a little too far? Is it possible that science may have made a mistake? There's a quote here at the end of the chapter by Dr. Zane Keim, cited multiple times with the book Sunshine. The quote is, The most biologically active part of sunlight is the ultraviolet. It is absolutely critical for optimal health. And so that's the end of the chapter. And I don't want you to think that Dr. Jacob Lieberman is hell-bent on UV light and UV light exposure. That was just one chapter in this book here. How many chapters are there? I think there's 15 or 16. But the purpose, again, of visiting that chapter is we're coming towards the end of winter. We're about to hit spring. And I just wanted to give you guys a solid foundation of the importance, the health benefits, the myth behind UV light. So hopefully when, when the spring starts rolling around and gets revving up into summer, you have a greater appreciation and um, more strategic, healthy tactics for getting your UV radiation in a healthful way. Again, not excessively, in moderation, building up that solar callus so that by the end of summer, you're almost sunburn proof. And that's something to track this, this year, especially if you're more in a northern latitude like I am up here in Montana. In the early spring, I can't be outside very long before my skin starts turning red. And I have pretty fair skin. But again, it doesn't take very long in the spring. But as I get my consistent UV exposure, as I build up my sun callus, and of course, I'm getting my, I'm watching my morning sunrise as I'm, as I'm grounding every morning. So I'm getting some preconditioning with my skin there anyway. But, but as far as building up my callus, by midsummer, I can be out for, for hours without getting a sunburn. And then of course, by the end of summer, I can virtually be out all day you know, with my shirt off, just getting all the sun rays I can, again, without having to worry about getting a sunburn. And so there's a vast difference between the beginning of spring and the end of summer when it comes to to my body. And of course, that's how it would be if during the late fall to early spring months, you're not getting much UV exposure. And again, red light therapy isn't going to necessarily mitigate that. You need UV light, not red or near infrared. You need the other side of the visible spectrum, UV light to get all these benefits that uh, Dr. Lieberman was just reporting on there. So anyway, guys, I appreciate every single one of you, those that have lasted to the end of this lengthy solo sode. But again, I hope you found that information at least interesting, thought-provoking, and again, hopefully applicable to your health and wellness strategies. Looking forward to, again, reviewing more books, going over some more insightful information to help 
you optimize your light environment, your light lifestyle. And speaking of which, uh, I'm going to sign off now and go outside and get my own UV light exposure, uh, believe it or not. In mid-February, we were having some very sunny days, so I'm going to go capitalize. But you guys have a great, fantastic week. This has been Dr. Mike Belkowski signing off of the Red Light Report. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.